I think it would have been better to focus on what I thought was the really compelling part of the story, which is that this, you know, prim, proper suburban mom gets caught up into this world she didn't even know existed. And then she's basically committing crimes and having to live a double life that she doesn't reveal because obviously she doesn't want to be arrested. That's the part of the story that I thought was the most fascinating. Hello, welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about Call Jane and Triangle of Sadness, two movies that could not be less alike, starting with Call Jane. Now, Mike, I saw this at Sundance, and there were actually two Jane movies. There was another movie called The Janes. And of course, this movie with Sigourney Weaver and Elizabeth Banks in it. And we opted to watch this one because it had Sigourney Weaver and Elizabeth Banks in it. So I was happy to see that it, it you know, got a, a release and that it, that it is out there and people are watching it. It's based on a true story of Chicago in the 1960s, where there was an underground club of women who helped desperate women get abortions. So that's a tough topic to open with. Mike, where do we want to start talking about it? It's all about the timeline. It's fascinating to learn that you saw it initially at Sundance for this reason specifically, that the Jane Collective, as it was known, was something, you're right, in the 60s and early 70s to help women get access to abortion at a time when that, that was you know, illegal. And so when you saw the movie, which would have been what, last January, at that time, Roe v. Wade, which had, you know, gone through the Supreme Court in 1973, Roe v. Wade was still the law of the land when you saw this film. However, now, you know, as the film goes into general release in the fall, it's after the Dobbs decision, you know, and, and so think about the timing on this. When you watched it, you were watching a history lesson in the sense of this is what it was like before Roe v. Wade. As, as I'm watching it now, I'm watching it through a different lens almost. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it differently. I think that kind of sad to say that adds to the, the importance of the film. You know, I, I have mixed feelings about it as a film, but I think it adds to the importance of, of the subject matter, certainly. And so within the film itself, the focus will be on one character named Joy, played by Elizabeth Banks. And in many ways, she's a sort of typical housewife and, you know, just a good prim and proper person and all, all, those, all those almost stereotypical attributes. But, but, you know, someone we care about, she's having a difficult pregnancy. Now, what should she do? She was not an activist, this character. I mean, she, you know, and yet she became an activist. She got pulled into the Jane Collective. She became active that way. And as a character, she's very repressed initially. She's within a, a more or less happy marriage, I guess, and just sort of a normal life. And yet she's got to suddenly become edgier, more extreme, which is going to start over her husband and daughter that, you know, this prim and proper character is going to become an activist and do illegal things, right? I mean, in terms of what abortion was at that time, not, not just in terms of her own pregnancy, but with other young women, other women she's working with. And so think of her in terms of the word repression. And the reason I say that is the director of this film, and I think it's worth noting here that it's a female director, Phyllis Nagy, that the director of this film had also written a screenplay for Todd Haynes's film, Carol. And that's another film very much in a sort of 50s setting about how uptight and repressed women were at that time. And so this certainly is a motif that carries through both films. And so um, all that is in the favor of this film. It's a, you know, a worthwhile and likable film that way. 
There are times, however, where, where some of the other women within the collective, you know, specifically the Sigourney Weaver character, for instance, when they have arguments in the film and they have discussions and explanatory things, some of this amounts to exposition that is meant for the audience, for us, as much or, or more than it's meant for the other characters. Like when the women are sitting around in somebody's living room and they're arguing the issues of the day, there would be arguments like that. But sometimes the, the speech making, the soapbox kind of material, which I agree with, it's not at that level, but the way in which it's pitched rhetorically, I think, well, you wouldn't need to be saying this to the other women in the room necessarily. You're saying that for the sake of the movie audience. And there were some scenes like that that got kind of tendentious, just kind of like, you know, that kind of moralizing, which again, I agree with the moral, but that kind of in your face moralizing, I thought, okay, you know, for a film that runs a little over two hours, I get the point. I get it. Maybe if you had tightened it up a little bit, it just sometimes seems kind of redundant in places. And th that's my one reservation. My other major reservation is much as I like Joy, and how can you not like someone with that name? I mean, you know, it, it, she's got all this likability in her, right? And she's doing the right thing by joining the, the Jane Collective and helping other women facing pregnancy-related issues. Okay, all that's on the up and up. I'm, I'm with you on all that. However, the film itself is following a sort of conventional heroic narrative, as I'll call it you know, tracing the, the evolution, the progress of this one woman as she becomes enlightened, as she becomes less repressive. That's all valid. Uh, and it, it the, the narrative art carries the audience. However, I kept reminding myself, yeah, but the film called Jane is all about the Jane collective. And I, I wanted a stronger sense in places of the women as a collective, as a group of women. It's there in the film. So I'm, I don't want to overstate this. But by the same token, I thought, must you have the conventional heroic narrative of the one female protagonist and her progress, her evolution. Okay, that's there, but why not in a film like this allow it to be even more of an ensemble piece? Bring in some of the other women and some of the other stories even more so. It seemed to me like a, like a, a missed opportunity to give us a film that would be a bit less conventional by way of the structure of the film. You make really valid points, and I will say that the Elizabeth Banks character, named Joy, has a risky pregnancy and she has to go before a board of old white men who are deciding her fate and they decide that a 50-50 risk of her life is, is acceptable. That was a very powerful scene, very well done. I, I think I had the same reservations you did, which is it's called Call Jane. So what I was expecting more of was more women in desperate situations that they could have illustrated calling the Janes rather than making the Janes themselves and their discussions in their living room about you know, we can only do so many because we only have so much money to work with. And I've got this, you know, case that's really compelling. But, it, you know, somebody else has a case that's also compelling. The one thing I did think worked about that, although I agree with you, those speeches were for the people in the audience, not the people in that room, is that when I did see it, you're right, Dobbs hadn't been handed down yet. But women have always talked about what happens if they overturn Roe v. Wade. What would people do? And I think that that scene might have been intended to make women watching the movie think, oh, if this is how it goes, be a Jane and try to, you know, identify with one of the women that was in that room making a speech on behalf of somebody who needed this procedure for, you know, to save their life or because the fetus wasn't viable or any number of justifiable reasons that you could have put into the movie. So I think that might have been a way to uh, model behavior in terms of seeing yourself on the screen as somebody else who might be someone who could help. Well, but what makes the film so incredibly topical now, ironically, is that just as these women felt the need back in the 60s to create a Jane Collective, 
that nowadays, post Dobbs, since Dobbs, we may well, sad to say, feel the need to start another Jane Collective. I mean, in, in many states, in the United States, you know, women will not have access to abortion or not ready access. And so you may well, ironically, feel see a kind of underground, it's already starting, actually, a kind of underground network in states like that starting again. So history is cycling around that way. And so that's why the film, which would have been worth watching in any season, in any month, you know, it, it, it's important history to watch and make note of. Now, sad to say, it has a kind of topicality that it didn't uh, directly have back uh, earlier in the year when you saw it. So now I think people do watch it with somewhat different lens, a greater sense of urgency, let's put it that way. I don't think the Janes ever went away, to be honest. I think that they just went underground. But I think they've always kind of been there in the background. I think now that things have changed, that will be a little bit more, people will be more aware of what call Jane means and will be you know, looking for Janes. It also obviously does not treat the issue that we have now, which is that a medical abortion is nowhere near as horrifying as some of what you have to sit through watching in terms of how the procedure works. Even It, it doesn't get super graphic, but you can certainly imagine what's going on. In it. And I thought that was really hard to watch. And I did want to compare it with another movie about sort of about the same subject, not about Jane's, but about the um, differences and ways that abortion is a decision women make in their life. And that's a movie called If These Walls Could Talk. And it's about a single house that is inhabited by three different women at three different times, all who struggle with some part of that issue of whether to continue a pregnancy. And that's also a very, very powerful movie. But I, I want to ask you, Mike, how does this kind of movie sit with you as entertainment? You know, most people pick a movie on a Saturday night, you know, or date night or whatever. This is not a movie I think most people would choose. I mean, I chose it for Sundance because it was almost documentary style, but not quite. And, you know, that's when you're trying to sort of challenge yourself with new ideas and what's out there, and especially if it's going to be controversial. But in terms of this being, you know, a movie you'd go see in the movie theater and entertainment, what do you think, Mike? Well, I suppose it depends on your definition of a date movie. <laughs> in this case, it is difficult to watch, and, and it should be. But, you know, for instance, the character Joy, I mean, she's got a difficult pregnancy, which we, we've talked about already. So her personal issue has to be dealt with or how she's going to deal with it. But then, as we've been saying, as she joins the Jane Collective, not only joining it by way of supporting uh, other women, but she's going to learn the medical procedure herself. And so... I wasn't going to talk about that in detail, but I think we need to right now in the sense that there are a number of scenes in the film where you see her in the office, you know, with the quote unquote doctor and, and, and with the patient and so on. And although it's not graphic, it shows enough to get the idea across. And, and so I was kind of squeamish watching those scenes, as I should be, really. And that's one area where the film has enough scenes like that, that they're effective but uh, almost like, like the, the living room scenes where the women are talking, you know, ideology on, in this and that. And, and, you know, again, pitched at the movie theater audience. But, you know, OK, I get it. I get it. I get it. And so some of the, the I'll call them doctor's office scenes. After two or three of them, I thought, OK, I, I know enough about the procedure right now to, in, in effect, not, not want to know too much more, actually. But I, I feel like I know enough. And, Marie, that's where I felt like the film actually... It's awkward to say that it wears out its welcome because, you know, it's not supposed to be lighthearted entertainment or something. But I just felt there were times where it just sort of like went on a bit too much where like if one or two scenes would convey what happens in that office, does it really benefit you to have like a third and a fourth scene just playing a minor variation on the same thing? What do you think? I think that's where you start to, I won't say lose your audience, just, just have people feeling kind of like worn down even by it. What do you think? 
Yeah, I think they included that, you know, just to be honest about the fact that this is really what they're talking about. But I think it would have been better to focus on what I thought was the really compelling part of the story, which is that this, you know, prim, proper suburban mom gets caught up into this world she didn't even know existed. And then she's basically committing crimes and having to live a double life that she doesn't reveal because obviously she doesn't want to be arrested. That's the part of the story that I thought was the most fascinating. The uh, about face that she does, the sacrifices that she makes, the lying that she does in the service of you know what she is trying to accomplish on behalf of women. That part of the story I thought was really well done. There could have been more. She goes from being prim and proper to being a criminal. Mm -hmm. I mean, strictly speaking, she's breaking the law and she has to lie to everybody. She lies to her husband, her daughter. She has a double life. That's quite interesting. I wanted more scenes with that. Mm -hmm. Because in, in, in terms of the political beliefs of what these women are saying in, in the living room circle, yes, I agree with all that and so on. In terms of giving us a sense of what happens in the quote unquote doctor's office, okay, I, you know, I understand better now and I have a sense of that. But I wasn't getting a full enough sense of her evolution as a character. I wanted more scenes where you sort of try to get inside her head because she's going from one thing to something very different in terms of how she lives her life. It's there, but if you're going to have extra scenes, why not have the scenes be there? I mean, that's what you're saying, Marie, right? Like, let's have right. more of those scenes. Yeah, something that humanizes the risk that she was taking in order because we get it about the procedure and about the reasons behind it. After they'd established that, I, I, I could have used a lot more about the risk she was taking because she had the strength of her conviction. Also, I really did like seeing Sigourney Weaver. And given that we, we just saw another one of her movies that we were discussing, like The, the Good House, I think this is Sir, Sigourney Weaver's year. I, I feel the same way and was really happy to see her in the movie because she's so good in this film. I mean, she's really terrific in that role, that kind of take charge personality. She's great there. She can take on any alien or any government body, you know, she's got it. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is a great way to sum up that movie, Mike. But let's move on to Triangle of Sadness, which I was really intrigued by from the very beginning. And by the way, the Triangle of Sadness is the area on your forehead where you get Botox. I'm not sure why they, except for the fact that it's a story about, you know, rich, rich people on a yacht and excesses in life. That was, uh, it's a strange place to focus the, the title of the film, but I absolutely love the way this movie started out because it's about two models who end up on this yacht because they are influencers and they have, you know, won a trip on this yacht. So, you know, they're fish out of water kind of story. But in the beginning, you see this um, modeling photo shoot. Actually, they're selecting somebody for a shoot, but there's this whole room full of all of these male models. And it's a very diverse group of men, except somehow they all still look like the same guy. And so the person doing sort of like a mockumentary is walking around asking them, so do you have a, a grumpy client or a happy client? And the difference between that was supposed to be uh, Balenciaga. If it's Balenciaga, then you have to look moody and angry. But if it's H&M, then you have to be smiling. And so he takes them back and forth between Balenciaga, H&M. And, you know, they dutifully go back and forth between trying to look mean and serious to, to happy. It was a great way to set the mood. And then it kind of takes off after there to the second reel where they're actually on the boat. Mike, which of the three scenes was your favorite? The, the opening, the ending, 
or the middle on the boat. I had very few favorite scenes in this film. <laughs> I think it's a love boat cruise for people who are not lovable particularly. <laughs> and as I was watching the film, I thought, this is the kind of movie that gives art house movies a bad reputation. And I will plead guilty on this in the sense that I have admired this director before. Ruben Ostlin is the director. A film of his I like a lot is Force Majeure. Mm -hmm. And then there's another film he did called The Square. These films mm -hmm. got a lot of critical recognition and, you know, Palme d'Or and, and the Cannes Festival, all that stuff. And I really was intrigued. I really liked these films. And they were European art house films that played well to an American art house audience. I think, frankly, it all went to his head. I think this movie's not quite a fiasco, but I think I think it's really misguided in a lot of ways. There's a sort of Euro self-importance here. He's got all these really spoiled, rich characters. Even our two protagonists, the two models, if you will, models and social influencers, they are meant to be really superficial, really vain characters. People who do get Botox, people who do have constant plastic surgery, who end up all sort of looking the same, if you will. And it's a very much a class-based uh, society on the boat. You have the the masters, if you will, who just sit on the sun deck and just, you know, have all these fancy meals and just spoiled, rotten, and, and, and very rotten people in a lot of ways. And then you have servants whose job it is to cater to their every whim. And I get it. Believe me, I get, I get the upstairs, downstairs scenario on a boat really well. But when the movie runs 150 minutes, I have a lot of time to get it. And I really do get it here. And I, I think I think the film itself, in some ways, is sort of a pseudo-sophisticated, pseudo-art house. And it did win the Palme d'Or at Cannes. And I think audiences were hoodwinked. I think they, they went with the director's reputation. I think they went with the social commentary, which is valid social commentary, but so obvious at times, so overstated, that by the time things take a wrong turn, if you will, on the boat, and, and let's say that the boat hits some heavy seas, some rough water, so does the film itself. And you end up, pe people are vomiting and et cetera. And it, it becomes a sort of excremental vision, if you will, of society. And it goes on at such great length with that. I feel like, I get it, I get it. And then as if that weren't all enough, and I don't mind spoiling this for people, there's going to end up being like really rough water and you end up, you know, stranded on a tropical island kind of thing. And I thought, well, this is sort of like the Euro trash equivalent of Gilgan's Island. I mean, this is this is how all these people will end up. And at that point, I thought, well, you know, enough already. It just it to me, it just seemed like so extreme and so obvious and so overextended that I was embarrassed as somebody who's enjoyed many art house films. I thought I want to go out and just watch a superhero movie at this point, which is something I rarely say. But but this, this almost turned me against art house films. So how's that for a negative observation? <laughs> Well, I'm kind of shocked to hear that. I, I thought that the, the scenes where everybody is vomiting and sliding around in their own excrement, I thought it sort of evoked the same sort of scene in Parasite where all of the toilets start overflowing. I thought the movie had moments of real wit that I thought were biting and incisive. I agree with you. I even wrote down in my own notes, you know, Gilligan's Island gone, you know, awry, especially since they had this older couple. And this is one of the things I thought was hilarious the nicest couple on the boat is this older couple who you know were in the you know they made um weapons of mass destruction they made grenades and stuff and just were so blasé about it i thought some of those scenes were just really very funny i thought woody harrelson was wasted in this movie he plays the ship's captain and he's drunk all the time and he's not paying attention so when they they hit the rocky conditions you know nothing can be done about it what was the point of him at all Mike his performance and, and the character total waste I mean just not in the movie all that much to really matter but but showing up and he was he was just like doing shtick 
he was, you know, this alcoholic uh, character doing shtick, and it just wasn't that funny. I do agree with you. There are moments of cleverness. In fact, that elderly couple who manufacture weapons of destruction, but that's their business, right? You know, they make they make you know hand grenades and they make all kinds of weapons and so on. But that's part of the larger uh, satirical scheme here. Namely, the film is spoofing global capitalism, the overlords that way. And there were individual scenes that I agree with you on were very funny. But that's that's amidst, you know, a very long running time and a lot of like overly obvious scenes. So it's just like moments of cleverness there. But finally, just thinking, OK, I, I get this as a, as a spoof of, uh, you know, the ruling class. But again, you know, you have to have a sense of, of narrative shape and direction and efficiency. And this is a film that is so enamored of itself. It just goes on and on and on. And, and you know, that's why, like when the characters are sort of letting loose that way by way of the vomiting and this stuff. Yeah, I can laugh at it in, in this scene or that one, but you know, how many scenes of that do we need? And that's that's where the, the film itself seems really excessive, really going overboard before it literally goes overboard. I think that that was done that way because this director has said in other interviews about other movies, I think it was actually about the square, that he refuses to show anybody being killed on screen. So things are alluded to that you don't see when they wash up on shore for, you know, Euro trash Gilligan's Island. Not everybody makes it, but they don't show you what, you know, the demise of the people who who didn't make it. And, you know, it, I sort of had to think about it like, wait, I feel like, no, I guess we didn't see anybody actually die on screen. And the reason he said that is he wanted it to be very true to life and he had never experienced that himself. So he didn't want to shoot any of his movies, including the violent scenes, which he says Americans do too much of. But see, I disagree with him on this point because the film itself is so superficial, so facile, that by not showing any of those deaths, I mean, a lot of people died when the ship went down, but we almost hear nothing. It's just, and the survivors are so callous and so indifferent. They don't even mention it. They don't talk about it. But that's part of the overall coldness of the film, I thought. That's where, you know, he's taking credit for not killing off characters on screen. And he does make a valid point that American movies tend to have overkill in that respect. I agree with that. But he's gone to the opposite extreme. And by not showing that, he's still surfing on, on, on the film's basic satirical jokes, isn't he? He's not taking seriously what happens to all these other characters. And, and I think that's the point where, you know, he's priding himself on not killing characters on screen, but he's killing the audience. I mean, we have to sit through this. Well, you know how I feel about the runtime. I mean, as soon as I saw the runtime, I thought, boy, this had better be good. Because, you know, you're asking a lot when you ask people to sit for more than two hours. You really have to justify it. And I agree with you that, you know, some of the scenes on the ship could have been tightened up a little bit. I, I thought that was partly to show, because we weren't going to see the demise of the idle rich, what we were going to see is them being brought low. So they did do that. But again, I don't know that that's valid entertainment as much as wallowing in the scenes that he seems to have wanted to extend and extend and extend. Well, again, that's where, you know, although I admire his earlier work, I think he just got sort of full of himself, you know, and that can happen. You know, you win the Palme d'Or and you won it again for this film. You reach a certain level where people just automatically want to give you an award because you're an important director. And, and it doesn't please me to have to say that because I really love Force Majeure and, 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 and I, you know, I like The Square well enough, too. So this is a director I've been on his side, if you will. But I just think here it all sort of went to his head. Now, he has said that one of the themes that he likes using over and over in his films is the idea of saving face. And I can see that in Force Majeure, which I also agree. Great movie. You know, if this movie got accolades because they wanted to reach back into the past and 
sort of reward force majeure. I understand that happens all the time, doesn't it, Mike? But what do you think about who's saving face in this movie? Well, it's saving face with Botox. I mean, <laughs> you know, that's really what it's all about here. And so, I, you know, I, I agree with and, and understand the thematics of the film. But again, it's a matter of just there's so much reinforcement of those few basic and obvious points that it just really wears out the audience, I think, to, to have to sit through it that way. It's one of those emperor has no clothes sort of moments, isn't it? Where you think this is a film that's so involved with itself and so important. And then you watch it thinking, no, not really. It's not that profound. It's really pretty obvious and kind of stupid in places, much like the Woody Harrelson character, right? You know, it, it probably seemed worth doing as they were doing it, but you watch it now thinking, geez, you know, maybe you should just cut that character, you know, or just cut back on all this. And, and that, that's again, where that this sense of self-importance, once you walk down the red carpet of can and people give you the, the palm door, that could turn your head. And I know I keep saying this, but I, I think that would turn my head too. You'd, you'd see yourself as a cinematic, and not just an auteur, but a master, right? You'd, you'd see yourself in those terms. And I think, you know, all joking aside, I think something of the sort happened here as this film was being made. Well, I don't know if it's going to find an audience. This is, uh, he at least in terms of trying to find a larger audience, did this movie in English, which I think will imp improve its chances. And I saw it in a regular multiplex. I'm sure you saw it at the Charles. What was the audience reaction? Well, I saw it in an art house setting. It, it, it's true. People were largely quiet as they watched it. Maybe they were snoozing. I don't know. But, you know, the thing is, you know, it was not a film where the, I've heard much positive buzz about it. A lot of positive buzz going into it. It had the award. It had all this, you know, media play. I think, again, it's a case that when you actually watch the film itself, it doesn't live up to all the hype that went into its making and all the hype that went into the awards. That's that's the moment of truth, isn't it? And, and that there's a kind of sadness in that when you realize the film doesn't live up to all that hype. Now, without giving anything away or giving it away, if you really want to just tank the movie altogether, <laughs> what did you think of the ending? I don't want to give away the ending there because people who've suffered through the film are entitled <laughs> to suffer through the ending. <laughs> well, I mean, in terms of, did you think it was a effective ending? I was just happy it was over. <laughs> I found the ending very ambiguous, and I found that very unsatisfying. Yeah, it was unsatisfying, and I won't specify why, but it's unsatisfying all the way through, and then at the very end, it doesn't let you off the hook that way. So ambiguity is certainly a trait this director has used to good advantage before. So so I'm, I'm all for ambiguity oftentimes, but in this case, it just seemed like it's like, okay, there you go, you know, now, now you're out of here. Uh, and I did stay through all the end credits, so, so I'm a glutton for punishment. Now, the actor playing the young, successful female model actually passed away recently. And in her early 20s. So, and she kind of looks like a clone of Penelope Cruz, I thought. So, I just want to give people a heads up. If you do watch that, you may be entranced by that actor and think, oh, I, I want to look her up and see what else she's done. And sadly, she is no longer with us. Have you seen anything else she's done, Mike? What else has she done? I don't have it written down in front of me. Not, nothing, I think, major. Yeah, I don't but really she know. Was, she was well known, though, among Yeah, but I, I didn't really, I'm not really familiar with her work. Ironically, she may have been more of a presence as an influencer and like an online presence than known for her other movies. But it is tragic that, you know, you watch somebody so full of life and realize, wow, this is their last movie and you would never have guessed. 
Yeah, her name's Shirley Dean, and uh, the male lead is Harris Dickinson. They play two models on, on the boat, and they're actually, you know, technically they give solid performances. I mean, they're, they're they're fine with that. Most of the actors actually they do what they should be doing with those characters. I may disagree with the scripting and the characterizations and that, but the acting is is fine in terms of doing what they should do. Uh, Woody Harrison should have just, you know, taken another job. I mean, you know, the way he does the shtick there, it's really not that enjoyable. It's kind of painful actually to watch him. And don't you think in some of those scenes? Absolutely. Yes. You think why, you know, you should fire everyone involved in putting you into that movie. But that does bring us to the end of our episode. Don't forget to check out our other episodes, dragondigitalradio.podbean.com and also under Dragon Digital Radio on Spotify and Pandora. And we will see you next time at the movies. See you then. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.